0: Hello, everyone. This is Jed at Charter Folk. Charter Folk is a new community we're building online for people who are super passionate about the charter school movement and want a new place to come together to explore the issues that are in front of our movement and to forge a new smart path forward. Uh, Among the things that we're doing, uh, we are putting out um, publications, uh, online newsletters twice a week. Uh, We are celebrating a different Charter Folk extraordinaire every Monday. Uh, And we're also doing uh, a monthly um, video cast series, and we are delighted to be able to start our first one today uh, with a great first guest, Arnie Duncan. Uh, Arnie is with us. <laughs> Arnie, thank you so much again for being here with us. Um, uh, as all guests know, uh, Arnie served as the Secretary of Education before that. You were the uh, chancellor, superintendent in, in Chicago. Um, that's where you and I first met. If you might remember, I was going to business school at Kellogg. And uh, and we were thinking as business school students, how are there ways that we could help uh, the large school district address its various business challenges? And you were incredibly gracious. And you invited me to come right on downtown. And, uh, and I almost would have stayed uh, and worked on that project together. But uh, I had... The folks that threw me into experiences that were going to be closer to kids, but I was uh, really appreciative of the time we spent together and have always remembered that as our starting point for a relationship together. So thank you for that, and thank you for uh, being willing to be here today. Uh, happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, fantastic. Listen, I wanted to just start with a little bit of like army catch-up. Uh, you've been doing a lot of things since uh, you left uh, as being uh, secretary of Ed. You and I have talked a little bit about these things, some of these things, I think, are just really great things for our our listeners to hear about. Uh, would you mind talking a few minutes about what, what you're working on right now?
1: Sure. So my, my real do- job, my, my day job uh, that we've been doing for almost four years now is just working really, really hard to try and reduce gun violence here in, in my home in Chicago. And this, you know, stems from, you know starting to lose friends when I was a teenager. Um, during that time at Chicago public schools, very, very tragically on average, during my seven and a half years there, uh, we lost a a student, uh, every two weeks, uh, due to gun violence. It was a staggering, you know, rate of loss. And my wife and I had two young kids there and 99% of the time I was meeting, you know, parents after they had just lost their, their son or daughter. And, uh, you know everything else that's supposed to be hard. You know whether it's academic achievement or budget or labor management stuff or operations, finances, whatever. I don't want to say any of that was easy, but that they were all way, way easier than meeting those families, going to those funerals, going to classrooms where there was an empty desk and trying to make sense of senseless. Um. And very naively, in hindsight, when our family moved to D.C. in 2009, I thought we were rock bottom. I thought it couldn't get any worse. And unfortunately, for a a host of reasons, things got a lot worse. So we've been at it for almost four years now, working in the 15 neighborhoods here in Chicago that produce the vast majority of violence, working with the young men who are most likely to shoot or be shot, which here in Chicago is uh, young black men ages 17 to 24. And we do a number of different things. We have an amazing street outreach team. We have a phenomenal clinical team to help our guys deal with often a lifetime of trauma. We have life coaches, often guys that have been in the streets. You know, all their lives have been locked up for, you know, unfortunately sometimes long periods of time. But have come out and really want to help people learn from from their life experiences. And we have we have an education component. We've had lots of guys get high school diplomas. We have a set starting college this fall, which is really exciting. And then we have uh, a jobs piece where we transition guys from, from our work into the mainstream economy and try and give them a way to, to you know, not, not – they're going to make money. It's just our choice whether they're going to make it on the illegal side of the street or on the legal. And um, we have about 40 employers that are hiring our men at the back end of our programming. So that's, that's my real job. That's what I'm obsessed about. We had three consecutive years of double-digit reductions. And my, my, my metrics, my scorecards, are is pretty simple now. It's just homicides and shootings. That's it. We had three consecutive years of double-digit reductions. That was great. Um, this year has been really, really, really hard. And we're up significantly um, as a city. It's a really tough time uh, for a whole host of reasons. We can talk about if you want. The the one thing that's interesting: the neighborhood where we started, where we're the deepest, where we've worked the longest. While the city's up about fifty-one percent, we're actually down about thirty percent for the year. So a huge swing between those two, and having a real sense of the kind of work it takes to actually you know, make communities safer and give men a chance to do something better. Um, and this, you know, more recently, been spending a lot of time, unfortunately, on sort of school reopenings, which I, I'm sure you probably rather talk about that a little bit. And just due to the absence of, of federal leadership, uh, lots of time talking to superintendents, doing a number of sort of TV appearances to actually just got done, just testified before Congress, uh, you know, Half an hour ago, and just trying to you know step into uh, a leadership void with others and, and try and give superintendents and principals some guidance about what's what's safe and what makes sense in these really really difficult times.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, amazing work that you're um, focused on right now. I was I was on a, a, a similar video chat with um, John King real recently, and he told just this amazing story about his own personal background and and what it was that allowed him to first click into this idea of education equity. Um, You talked about having folks close to you that were affected by gun violence, but do you have that click in moment early in life? Hey, there's something about education. There's something about equity that is still compelling. It may become my life's calling.
1: Yeah, know, well, John and I are both, you know, sort of, I guess, creatures of our environment as so many folks are. So different stories, but, you know, ending up in sort of the same common path and, and passion. So uh, both my parents were educators. Um, I grew up in Hyde Park. My dad was a professor at the University of Chicago. We basically grew up on campus. Um, I'm back home. I lived, you know, we lived two blocks from where I, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And my mother uh, ran an inner city after school tutoring program. And she started that before... I was born in 64 and my sister in 67 and my brother in 70 and she started in 61 so we literally were raised as a part of her program from the time we were born so I was going to an after school program way before I went to a regular school and it just had this unbelievably formative impact in all three of us um she did that work for 52 years um until her health gave out unfortunately she, you know she has alzheimers now and that's a it's been tough but you know I I've, I've done what I've done my sisters trains principals for Chicago public schools. My brother, as my mother's health started to fail, he actually helped run her program, you know, for a while. And um, what we just saw all our lives was this tremendous, just disparity in opportunity between our friends during the school day and our afternoon <laughs> friends. And the crazy thing is, people talk about different zip codes. It's actually the same zip code. Uh, my mother's program was like 12 blocks from where we grew up. We would we would walk there some days. But in those days, there was an invisible border, a uh, 47th Street border between middle-class integrated Hyde Park and all black, all poor North, North Kenwood, Oakland. And her program was just on the other side of it. So what we just saw all our life was you know, kids who were as smart, as talented, as hardworking, as resilient, as creative, as entrepreneurial in the afternoons during the day and just nowhere near the opportunities um, yeah. that our daytime friends had. My mother did it and her volunteers did just an amazing, amazing job. Of changing those odds and yep. you know some extraordinary success stories which i'm happy to talk about if you want um but just i always thought her, her program was at 46 in greenwood you'll know, have 50 60 70 kids a day whatever i just thought about the kids at you know 43rd in greenwood or you know 47th and ellis who just didn't happen to find her program and just yeah. how much lost potential you know, just in our one little neighborhood, then you think about the city and then you think about the country. So that's the driving force for me that knowing what's possible, knowing what kids can, can accomplish coming from, you know, very tough families, very tough communities, you know, total poverty, um, and also knowing what's at stake when we fail to educate when that's not the pipeline to a better life and seeing, frankly, the deadly consequences um, of that.
0: Well, uh, interesting. My, I have a background that's somewhat similar in that both my mom and dad were educators and all of my memories of dinner conversations and those kinds of things were discussion between my mom and dad about the challenges of public education and I remember after I did my first month uh, on the job as a teacher driving home thinking to myself hey I made some pretty good decisions today in, in my first month on the job why is that and I attributed that at that point and I still do to this day Having been around the dinner table with my parents from a very yeah. young age, just yeah. built the intuition on these kinds of kinds of issues.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you one more. Sorry, one more quick anecdote, and yeah. there's just so many crazy stories. But the, you know, the, the young men we're working with, I had one of the first group of guys we worked with. Um, he said, "Arnie, I wish I would have grown up with more toys, but we grew up with a household full of guns." And mm. guess what? He became a shooter. And I just thought about, I grew up in a household full of bu- books both my parents were educators, educators, and surprise, surprise, all three of us kids became educators. And what I've really, really learned in this work is just, you just don't judge. And it doesn't make me any better, any smarter, any whatever. I just followed my family business. Um, You followed your family business. He followed his family business. And you and I just happened to be born into families that um, it was a slightly different family business. So this work is, it's so complicated and so deep, but it does nothing if it doesn't humble you and just to really see our common humanity um, and see how much just the circumstances of a birth, circumstances of community, circumstances of family uh, shape us in ways. And had I been born in that family, would I have made different choices? I can't say I would have.
0: Yeah. Well, I've been saying that um, the year 2020 is a well-numbered year in that it's uh, putting into focus. It's giving us 2020 vision on a lot of issues that we've been unable to see with clarity before. Uh, we've had, you know, just the, the, the combination of, of COVID and then the response, you know, since the death of George Floyd. I wonder uh, uh, what is your—how are these experiences affecting your worldview? Um, and also, how are they uh, changing your, your thoughts about the work? What, what is being made plain to us about what we need to do now um, with an even greater sense of urgency?
1: Yeah, this is a <laughs> state the obvious. It's just been such a difficult time, and you know uh, I've said repeatedly. I think we're dealing with uh, you know a couple different public health crises, a couple couple different pandemics. One is obviously COVID. Um, for us, there's this, this you know pandemic or public health crisis of, of gun violence, and the third one is the public health crisis of, of uh, systemic racism, and it's not you know new this year or new in the past couple months, but is you know 400 years old and you know i don't know if i say it, unfortunately just the reality is we deal at the intersection of all three of those We see that we see the results of all three of those so you know social distancing is a new term um the neighborhoods that we work in have been socially distanced for decades and yeah. you talk about redlining you talk about lack of investment you talk about lack of access to capital lack of access to health care food deserts you know you name it um there's nothing new there and uh in part because of that, uh, you know, I was trying to be honest, very candidly. This has probably been the hardest time um, of us doing this work, and one of the hardest times for me personally in the past. You know, post George Floyd, uh, we have had a staff member shot and killed. We've had three of our uh, young men shot and killed. We had the 20 month old baby of one of our men riding in the car seat, going to laundromat with, with his with his mother, uh, shot and killed. We had one of our star high school students. Um, She's been so active in the anti-violence work just the past couple years of us. Literally on the day of her virtual graduation, she went to the gas station to buy some water, shot through the arm. Uh, No police, no ambulance, almost bled out. Mother took her to hospital. She survived. But we've dealt with a level of trauma and loss. We've had hard times before, but nothing like this. And... uh, uh, you know, I, I know the quote that the you know, the the arc of uh the arc of justice, uh, arc of time, whatever is long, but it bends towards justice. I hope that's true. Um, I can't sit here and promise that that's true. Yeah. My only hope is that all these multiple crises, these multiple pandemics, these multiple you know public health crises are forcing us to. To face some very uncomfortable truths that are not new truths, <laughs> um, yeah. but that we've been able to to hide from, and we can't hide from them anymore. And the question is, do we have the courage, you know, in lots of sectors, and we can talk about education, including education, to do some things very, very differently. And if we do that, then I am hopeful. Uh, I am confident we can build a a country that's you know more fair and more equitable and more just in, in every in every aspect. Um, yeah. But there's nothing, there's no guarantee that we'll summon that courage. And again, to state the obvious, I think we've taken massive steps in the wrong direction the past, the past three years, past, you know, almost four years under, under President Trump. So this has um, been a really challenging time. I'll say very honestly, I've probably never felt more inadequate. And that as hard as we've all worked and as much as we've tried to do throughout our lives to, to really comprehend here's where we are. Um, despite all of that and how far we have to go and how differently we have to work and how much smarter and how much more collaboratively and how much more uncomfortable we need to, to make ourselves to, to really try and get at this. Um, there's an amazing obligation and opportunity. And again, I just just really, really hope that collectively um, we can um, we can summon the courage to do what's right uh, for our kids and for the community.
0: Do you think that, um, bringing it a little bit more specifically into education, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, the inequities that are baked into so many different parts of our society. Certainly, our our policing um, practices, criminal justice in general. Um, But what motivated me to do the work that I do was a feeling that those very same inequities are cooked into our public education system it's been very hard to make those inequities visible. It's been very hard to motivate people to run at them with the gusto that uh, I think is necessary. I think there are many folk who have recognized this and this is what has motivated our work. But do you think that this broader discussion that's going on around our critical need to address uh, injustice across our entire society actually opens up opportunities for us to make more progress in, in the education realm that we focus our work within?
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> I think the opportunity is absolutely there. Whether we take advantage of that opportunity is a very different question. And so, um, you know, if you, if we don't do it now, <laughs> shame <laughs> on us. And I don't, you know, then you probably cool. lose another 20, 20, 30 years or something. Um, but I, I just try and always be very honest, sitting here today I can't say that, you know, with absolutely, you know, absolute certainty or or a high level of confidence that we're going to have the courage to take on. And, and we can start to, you know, if you want, we can sort of start to list those inequities. I'd have my list. You'd have your list. You'd probably have a lot of overlap, but th- they are deep. They are structural. They are embedded. And, you know, just again, you know, by definition to date <laughs> until right now, you know, more than halfway through 2020. As a country, we haven't done this stuff. There's been lots of amazing individual work of charters and others who have, you know, really, you know, found ways to, to have impact and to, you know, change the, change the calculus and change, I don't even like say beat, you know, not beat the odds, change the odds. You know, that's what it can't just be about beating the odds. Um, but have we done it at true scale? Have we done it for, you know, all the kids or all the communities that need it? And The truth is um, real progress, amazing examples, but um, we're not close. We're not close to where we need to be.
0: Yeah. And so if we, if we think about, I've been trying to posit some new ideas uh, about um, what would be a, a, an important contribution for charter schools going forward. Uh, my own sense on this is that um, our role is to take a public education system that unfortunately unfortunately, it turned out to be not that public is riddled with the inequities I think that you're talking about. And we both model what schools look like that are more equitable, but then we push the entire system to purge itself of these inequities through the advocacy strength that we're building and, and our care for kids and, 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 you know, a variety of approaches. I wonder just as a starting point, you know, how do you react to something like that? Is that just um, uh, not even, it's so, it's so broad and ill defi- and undefined, it's hard to wrap our hands around it or is it a good starting point for us to thinking about what the next,
1: generation. Yeah. And and you're living this every day in a way that I'm not. So, you know, these are just some, you know, some, some initial thoughts. So, you know, three things, maybe, you know, one, yes, I think that's hugely important that we have to lead by example. You have to demonstrate what's possible. You have to show that that's possible again, not just of one great principal or one great school or one great leader, but at, at some scale and there's significant scale, you know, amongst charter networks and the broader charter community. So I would say that's a starting point um, but let me just sort of, you know, not to give you more work, more homework. Probably last time you want me on your on your podcast, but I'm always good assigning work. The other two things is just to continue to really try and influence the policy conversation. And um, you know, what percent of children now go to charter schools in the country? Do you know ballpark? Is it six percent? Yeah, I was, gonna say, I was gonna say five. So yeah. So again. That's great, and again, not every charter is you know good. And I've challenged the charter community to hold yeah. the charters accountable and close down bad charters. So it's nothing about the name charter that matters, but you know I just think we can't be satisfied if we're serving you know six percent of children well, and you know uh, a decent percent, whatever it might be, of the other ninety-four percent are not being served well. So one can you know that's one demonstrate what's possible, create those models, create those at scale. Second is to really continue to. To enter the public policy conversation in a really significant way, and you know, again, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but really put out there what's possible. And the third one that I've honestly pushed on in the past, and that we we as a you know charters community have, have I think done a, honestly a really poor job is to really have the voices of students and parents be heard and the sort of the demand side of this thing. And you sort of think of how many parents, how many kids. How many children of color? How many parents of color? How many charter operators now who are, are you know educational leaders of color? And it, it's, um, it, it's 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 sub rosa, and I think that's really really devastating from a political standpoint, and to to really activate and motivate um, and empower and get out of the way, but that if we had more demand, <laughs> yeah, uh, for this. That changes everything. If you have a supply as great as it might be, as you know, world-beating as it might be, um, but that's not publicly known or acknowledged, or can be sort of pushed, you know, pushed aside or whatever, um, because it's an inconvenient truth. Um, and I think we've done a grave, we've, we've done ourselves, and, and frankly, kids in the country. Uh, and I don't say this lightly. I mean this very sincerely. You know, people can disagree. We've done the country a grave disservice by not really, really working with parents and students, uh, you know, leaders, but particularly you know, educational leaders of color to yeah. tell their story and to tell it again, not PR, not spin, tell it honestly, tell it clearly. And if we had a lot more parents demanding what the charter community is offering, we would be in a very different spot right now. And I think we just haven't invested in that for the past, whatever, 20, 25 years. It's not too late, but we paid a real price for, for not doing that.
0: Yep. Well, I tend to think that some of these problems grow out of failure in, in creativity from people like me. I, I, in one of the blogs, I you know referred to us as you know the schmuckheads responsible for advocacy in Charterland. Charter My sense is that if we would change what we're advocating for, um, it's going to make it more much easier to bring in the allies that you're talking about. But we have to be advocating for the right things. So I was really interested. You were like, you've got your laundry list of inequities. You know, for example, for me, just Brown, versus well, Board of Education. You this t-shirt friend, you know, gave, gave to my son, Quentin. It's the only, you know, child t-shirt I couldn't get rid of. I framed it, right? You know, we, we redline educational opportunity in this country. There is no way around this, right? And charter schools model that your place of residence should not determine where you uh, go to school. In addition, by and large, there may be a few exceptions in some states, but generally charter schools do not use selective admissions criteria as a basis for admissions. And yet we know that there are thousands of public schools across the state or country that do this. Given that we don't, and given that we're passionate on these issues, I think we should be pushing the entire public school system to purge itself of its redlining, attendance boundaries, uh, you know, in an orderly way, in a smart way, not erasing it all together, but also pushing folks to get rid of these selective admissions criteria, which we know exclude kids by race. If we got together policy proposals like that, and then we asked more folks to be with us or taking the lead on it, I feel like they would be much more inclined to do it.
1: But I don't know. React, react to that. Am I am I, am I on the right track? Yeah. Or? No. I mean, unfortunately, there's so many. So yes, that's on the list. I mean, I'll just name a couple others on the list, and you can't. To your point, you got to focus, so you got to sort of prioritize all this stuff. So that's that's absolutely you know a battle or one battle that could have some rally you know rallying behind it. to obviously, just the disparities in how education is funded and the you know reliance on local property taxes and sales taxes. And again, COVID now as hard as last school year was, this next school year is going to be harder as those local you know sales taxes, property taxes, everyone's going to be down. Districts are going to be hit, charters are going to be hit probably even harder. And without a federal backstop, without a federal investment. You know, this year is going to be brutal financially and, you know, teachers laid off and all those things that we like. We're not even having those conversations. But, you know, thinking about education as a national good (laughs) rather than as a local whatever, you know, that's another conversation. Then I always talk about a couple different ones. You know, one is how we allocate time. Time is often the constant in public education. Charters have been more creative than most in terms of having time be the variable and trying to have learning be the the constant. But we've seen very, very little innovation or change there. And again, now in this virtual world, and you know how we learn, that should be you different technology. Clearly, you know another piece of that that you know where kids, you know, we know you know 80% of white kids and you know less than two thirds of black Latino kids have devices, you know, and have access to Wi-Fi. Why, you know, that's got to be ubiquitous, you know, like air, like water and electricity. And the fact that in this time of virtual learning being the reality for the vast majority of kids across the country, whether it's full time or part time or whatever, and the fact that we still have that massive inequity, you know. And then the, the final one is I, you know, talk about talent. That again, if we think you know, teachers matter and principals matter, and charters have probably done this better than most. But I always, you know, I had my battles of what's federal, what's local. But I always said, uh, you know, 15,000 local districts. I traveled to all 50 states and you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools. I don't, you know, I don't even know how many. But everywhere I went, I just asked, can you tell me, give me one district, one out of 15,000 that systemically, systematically identifies their hardest working, their most committed teachers and principals and put them in the kids in the community that need the most help. Yeah. And there is not a single district. There's not one that, that does that. So you take yours, you take funding, you take time, you take technology, you take talent. I call them the three Ts, you know, lots of ways to look at this thing. Um. We're not again for all the great work, for all the you know remarkable work, for all the blood, sweat, and tears, for all the remarkable work of kids. We're not even in the game. I mean, it's like we're not scratching the surface, and that's the question for me: is can we move much faster, much more radically um, in all of these areas um, given this moment? And again, if we don't, then when the hell are we going to do it?
0: Yeah, Well, I totally agree with you on the funding equity piece, um, and it's it's each each advocacy partner has to think about what is your your entry point, right? One thing I think that charter schools have to offer is we budget our ourselves down to the school level. Uh, people know does what, what the money actually gets there, right? And once you can see things at a school level, it becomes much more meaningful to students and to parents, right? But massive school districts, you can't ever see it. And I know what the experience was at Hooper Avenue Elementary School, where I taught in South Central Los Angeles, when we were able to show our teachers how much funding would come back to our school if we went charter it became real in that moment how much money was being taken away from our school in south central los angeles that should have been the best funded school anywhere in the country right but until it was brought down to the school level right so that's where i feel like we could be pushing hey we already budgeted this way and we think that everybody else should and not by formula we want to see it down to the dollar because we live in a country where money has been sucked away from the highest needs communities to subsidize the low the lowest needs communities, right? And when we are on the right side of history and on the right side of those issues, the parents, the community partners, the students that we want with us, I think are going to be there with far greater yeah,
1: victory. Yeah, I do think, yeah, so uh, agree on all that. I just think this idea of real transparency and all this stuff and a scorecard and putting all this stuff out broadly for the public, and the, you know, if others aren't willing to do that, people will figure no. it out and just put it out there. Like I'll give, um, you know, obviously lots and lots of great charter networks. But what Kip did about their college completion rates, I thought was, at least for me, that was the first time I'd ever seen that kind of data. Yeah. And yeah. on one hand, it was, you know, better, probably much better than other districts. On the other hand, it wasn't as high as they wanted, but it was real and it was the first time i've seen that scale people really put that kind of stuff out and then that's the that's the the benchmark that's the launching pad sure. then you hold yourself accountable every year for trying to trying to get better at it but that whether it's you know financial transparency or transparency around outcomes or you know all this different stuff um, having you know the charter community just put that out by community by charter network by city by whatever um, that's education has been so opaque for so long. And that's by design. That's by design. Whether it's funding, whether it's 50 states having 50 different standards, you can't tell if a child's on track to be successful or not. Um, Those things, you know, that's not by accident. That's on purpose. And so, yes, modeling, leading by example, again, not cheerleading, not spinning, putting out there, all this stuff is a work in progress. None of it's perfect. Um, that, that, That vulnerability, that on yeah. you know transparency honesty vulnerability uh that's that's what people are are people are starving for that now and so i think again for for the charter community to lead by example and all of that stuff and just commit to it year after year after year and being relentless on it um that's a big deal yep
0: well taking it back a little bit um, into broader political dynamics can you just offer some observations on where you think charter schools stand right now we've gone through a period where there's been some very major blowback. Um, And there's real concern about having lost some support in the Democratic Party. Um, And we'd love to hear your thoughts about where we actually stand and what recommendations you have for us in terms of making ourselves as strong as possible
1: for the future. Yeah, so I'll say two things. You know, I, I happen to be a Democrat, but for me, like this election has nothing to do with Democrat or Republican or left or right. It's really fighting to save our country from a leader who is, you know, a Russian asset who is fundamentally corrupt. And uh, you know, it's everything's at stake. And you know, my daughter's old enough to vote. it be her her first time voting, and I, I, I well. truly. I truly, truly pray that this is the most consequential election of her lifetime. I hope there isn't another election this important. So for me, that that fundamental issue of fighting to save, literally save our country and things that I frankly took for granted and thought were here forever, um, I've was seen just sort of not swept away, but fundamentally challenged in a couple of years in ways that I I didn't think were possible and just how fragile our democracy is and how we have to fight for it every single day and continue to reinvent it. So for me, this election, um, yeah, so I'll get to education policy, but that's, um, I, I feel like I, I almost don't have the, the, uh, the luxury of, of focusing on this, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, this policy or that policy now, because the the fight is so much bigger, and I think we have to unite to to win that. Um, and if we don't win it, then everything's out the window. Um, and we got to count on you know, Russian interference. We got to count on being cheated. I always, you know, use basketball analogies. It's like you're you're on the road and you know the refs are going to cheat you, and you can't win by three points because you're going to lose. You got to win by fifteen, so you win by ten. You know, and that's. That's the mentality we have to have. And, you know, whoever, you know, Vice President Biden picks for his vice president, we can't, you know, we, we got to support that 100%. It doesn't, you know, we all might have our personal opinions. It just doesn't matter. It's just so, so small. So that's the context. Yeah. Having said that, if, and it's a big if, if we do the hard work over the next 90 days to ensure that we have new leadership and leadership you know, has integrity and leadership that isn't literally owned by uh, a foreign power in charge, then at some point we can start to get into the nuances of education policy um, Mm -hmm. as we try and dig out of an economic crisis, as we try and dig out of a public health crisis. I'll go back to my original point. That's where I led with that the best way I think to do that is through, again, not just the public policy advocacy, but having many more students, many more parents, many more community leaders, many more charter leaders of color driving and leading this effort going forward. I think that voice is so powerful and so important and has been, you know, muted, has not been invested in, has not been you know, listened to, and that's, that's been a strategic error for a long time and is a, a more than ever a strategic error now. So that, that, for me, if we want to get to a better place, um, I think that's, that's the best it's not an easy thing to do. That's the best thing I can sit here today and say that we need to do that, that frankly, we haven't done.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, I say in, in a lot of different contexts that in terms of school advocacy, the two things that we've got to get great at, one is what I call thunderbolt casting. You actually have to get good at the ballot box. You have to get good at comms. You have to get good at your legislative work. You have to get good at grassroots, right? Okay. Um, But the other thing that you have to do is you have to build your mountaintop from which to launch your thunderbolts, right? And that's having a base. And that's what makes charter schools unique in terms of all the reform efforts that have come before us. We now have millions of kids who we are serving, who are connected to tens of millions of family members. Um, The question is, has our movement really invested in its base? to build the kind of authentic structures of engagement and empowerment and decision-share decision-making that we really have to do. Right. And I'm, yeah. I think we are open to criticism that we have not come that at nearly the level of three have.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's my honest opinion. And I've as said, it It's not just a critique of the charter community. I've pushed the philanthropic community really hard. And if you look over the past 20 years, maybe you guys know the numbers, you know, how much have we invested in teacher programs? And that's hugely important, but it's, not probably tens. It's probably hundreds of millions of dollars. And how many have we invested in great principals? And that's probably tens of millions of dollars, not hundreds of of dollars. How much have we invested in great charter networks? And we, you know that's that's a huge number. Um, how much have we invested in grassroots parents? <laughs> and it's 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 we haven't we haven't. And I think yeah. that's a de- that's just such an important you know leg of the stool that's been, been overlooked and been undervalued and underappreciated. And that has absolutely hurt, hurt the movement. And so it's, it's incumbent upon all, you know, yes, the charter community look inward, but the, the philanthropic community that's been very generous in lots of different ways, but just hasn't, hasn't seen the value of, of this thing. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, again, it's never too late but that has to change, I think, in a very significant way. And not that you want to not invest in those other pieces; those are all important. But it's got to be—we got to rethink um, the 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 resource allocation um, between those different those different pillars. Yeah.
0: Well, it, the proof is in the it is in the pudding, right? It's if it, the proof is in where we put the money uh, and what we really do. It's like the talk is cheap now, right? How are we going to act? And um, well, I think we have an opportunity to do, to do some through some acting in some different ways. But um, I think what the what the COVID and the George Floyd situation does is it puts everything in, in perspective and it raises the expectations. Hey, it's got to work this time. Or, you know, the worry that we have and that you shared when you first started the call, I think, is something that will uh, become even more pervasive. Um, look, I really appreciate, you know, your time. Can I, can I keep you for another five to ten minutes here? i got yeah. two more questions for you. Yeah, let's do, do, do two questions. I'll be good. All right. Very good. You know, one thing I, you know, it's, it's, um, again, we want to get things through the election and all, all these, all these pieces. Uh, one thing that's just made charter schools different from the very beginning is that we were this place where folks from all different political walks of life could come together. Right. And now we're in this time where it's so difficult for anybody to stand together, you know, from, from different political parties. Do you think that, um, that notion of, of charter schools being that unique space where folks from all different political perspectives can come together is still the right place for us to be or literally we've just gotten to a different point where we have to think about this completely differently
1: well, yeah that's a that's a really hard question that I'll, I'll probably give you a pretty incoherent answer to because i I'm really struggling with it so I'm you know I've never thought of myself as political like I said I happen to be Democrat as you know better than others, I probably got as much critique from the left as I did from the right, if, if not more. And I just think education generally, you know, has to be the ultimate bipartisan issue. You know, who, you know, what's right or left or, you know, Democrat, Republican about, you know, higher graduation rates and more kids going to college. This is, this is nation building work. And I always say we can have lots of fierce and vigorous debate about the best way to accomplish those things. But what's killed me is we've never agreed on some national goals. And I would love to set some goals of you know, leading the world in access to high quality pre-K. I love to set a goal around, you know, high school graduation rates getting to 90%. Love to set a goal around, you know, college going and then, you know, leading the world in college completion. And the truth is we're not in the top 10 internationally in any of these things. And yeah. then again, let's have lots of, you know, lots of debate, lots of, you know, what works in Montana might be different than, you know, inner city Chicago might be different than, you know, wherever, uh, LA, um, but let's set some goals in a bipartisan way that are nation-building goals that are, you know, I would say a great military is our best defense, but a great educational system is our best offense. And then let's work on those goals. Um, I, I will never, hopefully, give up on working in a bipartisan way on anything, <laughs> whether yeah. it's on education, whether it's on trying to trying to beat down a pandemic. Um, I'm a big fan of national service. Like, how do we knit together, and how do we rebuild trust? And I'd love to see a, a huge national national service program, so young people can start to see their common humanity when you know before they become adults, and we all sort of you know retreat to our our neighborhoods and our social media feeds. Um, so it's a long answer that I would. We have to keep trying. Um, we are also. I just want to. We are in unprecedented times, unprecedented waters, and. <laughs> it may not be possible, but I think you always gotta give it your best your best faith effort, a good faith effort. And um, I just uh, again, I, I think, you know, again, this is my personal opinion, folks on a on the call might disagree. I just, you know, Trump didn't destroy the Republican Party. I think he's just the latest manifestation of where the Republican Party has been going for a long time. Um, I think we need two good parties in this country. I don't think we need one, you know, no one party has a monopoly on good ideas and anything, you know, particularly education. Um, the question is, you know, if Trump can be defeated, um, if there is a significant, you know, backlash against those in Congress, house and Senate who have backed them, is there a chance for the Republican party to, to rebuild itself from the ashes? And I don't know whether that's possible or not. And, uh, you know, that would be an opportunity, you know, hopefully to, Work with a, what whatever the new Republican Party might be, because it's been it's been destroyed. I can't tell you what it stands for now, and can we also, as we talked about, you know, move some Democrats along uh, on this issue? So it's a really hard one. Um, Got to try, but you know, I don't know, you know. History teaches us some things, but this is a, a historic time in and of itself, and where we land the, uh, on the flip side of this remains to be seen.
0: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. All right. Last question. So my uh, wife is a clinical psychologist. Uh, this question of resiliency is coming up with so many of her um, her clients right now. How to make it through just times that are more difficult than they could have possibly imagined. Um, I think that that's something that for all of us that care about education right now, the challenges are just so immense. Um, I'm reading I'm reading Howard Fuller's uh, No Struggle, No Progress. Right, um, and it just feels like the degree of struggle, you know, and we have to. Um, build resiliency muscles for, in order to generate that progress, is is something else. Can you just talk about your personal resiliency? Maybe, where where do you find it, and, and and those around you, those that are pushing through? What is it that gives them the octane to to, to act with as much vigor as the moment requires right now?
1: Yeah, and no, that's a good good place to to end. And uh, again, try and be very honest that this has been an extraordinarily difficult time, and I've probably had you know, more sleepless nights or more, you know, restless nights um, than I've had in a long time. Um, It's interesting in D.C., as weighty as as those issues are, they're they're policy issues and the challenges. What I've been dealing with now is, you know, the the amount of loss, the level of trauma, what I see. um, It it affects you. It affects you. And, you know, we're all trying to take care of ourselves and, you know, check on each other. Um, but it's not one, it's not been a time that I've, you know, breezed through personally by any stretch. And again, I think I I said at the start that, you know, for all that I've, I've tried to do throughout my life, um, a real, real realization of, of how much I haven't done and how much further we have to go. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's been, it's been hard. Um, having said that I am always hopeful and I was, I'm uh, always optimistic and I'll just, you know and I was trying to be very realistic. So it's not like hoping the un- unseen. I just happen to you know, be able to work with lots and lots of young people on the South and West side of Chicago who are living daily with a level of fear and trauma that I will never know. On my worst day, I won't know. And seeing their hope, seeing their dreams, seeing what they want to accomplish, um, that's a huge motivation for me. Um, with young men that we work with, and transformation is not Overnight, it's not linear. We have good days, we have heartbreaking days, but we literally have men who have not just shot at each other in the past, but have shot each other and hit each other, Um, who have found peace, who are now working together uh, to build safer communities. I think about what that takes to have people who have tried to take your life, who have frankly taken the lives of people you are close to, for them to be able to put down those guns and build a, a bond around common humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen something like that before in my life. It's the most inspirational, motivating, you know, just in, inspiring thing just to, to witness this. And some of the stuff we help foster and some of the stuff has happened and guys figured out themselves. And we just sort of hear about it after the fact, and it just sort of blows you away. We had, anyway, I got a million anecdotes with, you know, guys on a trip to DC, unbeknownst to us, had shot at each other and. The guy who had been wounded, he went and made peace with the guy who had shot him and forgave him.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: just think would I would I be able to do that if that had been me or been my kid or been my you know sister brother whatever? So um, for all the darkness, for all the personal struggle that's real, um, I still remain unbelievably hopeful, incredibly hopeful, you know. Uh, hopeful about what we can do because i i see what's possible i see what's possible every day in the midst of a dark dark time and that that's that that's what keeps me going
0: yeah well um it's an answer i hear from from lots of folks there's some people whose connection to the work is just so visceral uh that the energy they get from the families and the kids is itself the motivation that that helps them and i think arnie you've just been one of these remarkable people through your entire career you've modeled that for us all um and you bring it just a a humanness to what you do that um i think we all find just so so compelling so thank you for spending the time with us now okay. thank you for speaking so candidly about your thoughts right now and you know just really appreciate what you're doing for on all fronts political you know still instructional with the with the young men you're working with now and look forward to staying in contact with you
1: yeah. Thanks for all your leadership and these days We'll catch up in a, in a physical manner. <laughs> we're, all, <laughs> we're all getting tired of the zoom stuff, but it's great to connect. And thanks for, again, thanks for leadership and thanks for a really thoughtful conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.